The following message features Nathan Smith and was recorded at the fourth main session of Sovereign Grace Ministries Worship God UK 2014 conference. It's entitled Faithful to Serve. Nathan is the lead pastor of Grace Church Bristol. Morning. It is good to be here. You are very kind in your words, Bob. But I am, I am pleased that my, uh, half of my children can be here. Uh, and don't worry, they're not, they're not knocking off school. They are homeschooled. And so they have been excited about this conference as they've seen us work behind the scenes. And so I told them they could come this morning. Uh, one of the reasons I wanted them to come this morning is uh, because I... Just trying to hold this together. I want to impact them in the same way that my dad impacted me when it comes to serving. And he's not here this morning because he's serving us and looking after the other half of my family. And I grew up in a household where my mom, before she went to be with the Lord, and my dad worked tirelessly behind the scenes uh, serving. And some of, I hope what you hear this morning is the result of my dad's faithfulness. And I wanted to pass that on to them. So, uh, so it's good to have you boys. Love you. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the joy that we've had already this morning of just celebrating in the grace of God and the goodness of God towards us. so undeserving and you are so overwhelming and it is just wonderful to drink from the fountain of your goodness thank you for this privilege thank you for these people who've taken time off of work and invested their money to be here this morning we pray that we would be able to uh, serve them throughout this entire conference And as we gather around your word now, as Jeff reminded us yesterday morning, Lord, we come to your word because it is foundational for everything we do. And so we pray that your word, together with the power of your spirit, would work in each of our hearts to form us to be the servants that you desire us to be so that we might glorify you. And Lord, I pray now that these good people will hear a better sermon than I can preach. Because it's your word, with your voice. May they hear your voice resound in their hearts and minds and churches as we gather around your word for the glory of your name. Amen. Well done, good and faithful servants are among the first words that I would like Jesus to say to me. Closely second is, there's still marriage in heaven. <laughs> I'd quite like to hear those words as well. Um, but if, if that doesn't happen, I would like to hear, well done, good and faithful servants. But I I stand here this morning and I'm aware that there is something between where I am now and what, what if I hear those words on that day, and that is a life of serving. 
There's like this barrier between where I am now today and hearing those words, well done, good and faithful servant, and that is the fact that I have to go through a life of serving in order to hear those words. And perhaps you're here this morning, and for you, serving Jesus and serving his church is just an unspeakable privilege and a joy that you just want to pour out your whole life doing, and... If that is you, God bless you. I don't want to rain on your parade. But if you're like me and you have a pulse, I I suspect that that isn't the case all the time. I suspect that it's not like that for you all the time. It's perhaps not like that for you right now. Perhaps you remember a day in the dim and distant past when it was like that, but... Because of the busyness of life, because of the busyness of serving, because perhaps you have increased responsibilities, because, perhaps because you have increased demands, perhaps because you have increased expectations, and you married that to a decreasing amount of time and energy and enthusiasm and encouragement, it's just kind of left you feeling that serving is more of a duty than a delight. Perhaps you're burnt out. Perhaps you're here and you're exhausted and you're just praying that this conference would refresh you. Perhaps you're here and you are hoping that uh, the guilt of your attitude towards serving or the bitterness that's starting to well up in your heart, that the Lord would just zap you and take that away. Perhaps it's you want to hear good and faithful servant, well done, but you just don't know how to get from here to there. Well, hopefully this morning we're going to see from God's word his design on how we get from where we are today to hearing those words, good and faithful servant. So there are many places we could go, but I want us to turn to Philippians chapter 2, if you would. Because I believe God's word has the answer for us. He provides us with the definition of what it means to be faithful to serve. He provides us with the motivation. He provides us with the instruction to be faithful to serve. And it's, he does it in a way. I mean, the, as, as Jeff preached yesterday, I was just, wow, yes. God's word is not like a serving espresso that you kind of just drink down and, and it will somehow spur you on for the next It's time that you serve, but after that, the effect will fade away. Neither is it a guilt-fueled adrenaline to just do better. Come on. But God's word is going to help us, I believe, to faithfully serve our whole lives in the face of weariness, setbacks, criticism, seasons of spiritual dryness and drought. When you feel like throwing in the towel, God's word is going to serve us. And I believe it'll serve us when Matt Redman is on the phone and saying, can I come and tour with you? When things are going well, when things seem to be happening, God's word is going to keep our feet grounded. And my prayer today is however you serve, whether it be pastor, worship leading, musician, singer, songwriter, sound person, that that God's word would help us in our love for Jesus in our joy in Jesus, and then only then in our serving of Jesus. 
So, if you are in Philippians, let me just give you a bit of background. It's, it's probably Paul's most personal, spirit-inspired letter to a church that he loves. And it's just dripping with this love and affection that he has for his people. And it's continually expressed throughout. It's, it's his thank you letter to this church for the way that they have supported him, encouraged him, uh, been kind and generous to him in providing him financial assistance as, their, as his partners in the gospel. Uh, but it's much more than just a thank you letter. It contains... Uh, Paul's pastoral heart that he, he wants to share with them, uh, truths that will encourage them in their unity in the gospel, in their steadfastness in the gospel, in their joy in the gospel, and I believe it's going to do that for us this morning. So let's read. I'm going to begin in verse 27 of chapter 1, <clears throat> go right through to the end of verse 11 in chapter 2. This is God's word. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wonderful words. God's words. Now verse 27 is I think the central command of the central section of Philippians. It's the central command of the central section. It is I think the headline verse for Philippians. this, the whole section that runs from verse 27 right through to the end of verse 18 of chapter 2. And all of the commands and the exhortations that flow after verse 27 are there from Paul to explain and expand and apply what he's getting at in verse 27. So I just want to spend just a moment there in verse 27 because it comes with a tremendous force and an urgency. Only this. It's like Paul is getting sitting down with them and saying, this thing and this one thing only, this is what I want for you. This is the only thing, the one thing that I want for you. 
And it follows on the back of verses 12 to 26 of chapter 1, where Paul has just told us that all of his life and all of his actions and everything that he does is determined with reference to the gospel. And he wants that to be the same for his readers, for the Philippians and us. In light of the gospel, this, and only this, live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, verse 27 is actually... If I, now, I, I don't even attain to Bob's imaginary fifth-level educational standards that he kind of just gave. So, I, mean, I don't know, but in my reading and understanding, there are six Greek words here. Uh, sorry, there's one word that's translated into six English words, one Greek word. And our English translations have missed what Paul is getting at here because there's a, there's a Greek word. It's a, it's a, Jeff, I hope you'll correct me if I'm wrong. It's a verb. It's a doing word, which is it basically, I won't pronounce it in Greek, but it's translated, live as a worthy citizen. Live as a worthy citizen of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that would have had meaning to the Philippians because they were in, they were living in the Roman Empire and Philippi was kind of like a mini Rome. It was part of the empire that was a mini Rome. It was a colony, but it was politically, socially, architecturally in their dress and the language and the customs and the laws and the culture that they, that they engaged with. It, it was, they identified with Rome. They were citizens of the Roman Empire. And that came with certain privileges of protection and safety, but it came with certain responsibilities. That they were, citizenship meant that you had to live a life in such a way that you didn't defame the glory of Rome. That you didn't do anything to bring shame upon the empire. When Paul is using that word, he's trying to connect the Philippians. You know how you live towards the Romans? Not wanting to bring shame, not wanting to defame. Now, he's taking it up a whole new level. Live as a worthy citizen, not of the Roman Empire, but as of the, of the gospel, of, uh, of heaven. Live as a citizen of heaven. This is a call to faithfulness. Right there, verse 27. It's a call to believers to live a life that lives up to the gospel, that fits the gospel, that lives out the gospel. It's a call to be faithful, to receive, to proclaim, to engage, to serve, to grow to prepare for suffering and death. And that's, he touches on that in verses 28 to 30. <clears throat> it's a call from Paul to faithfully live in such a way that the truth and the power and the wonder of the gospel might be seen and exalted and highlighted and celebrated. Yeah. And it's a call for us to faithfulness. And he does, in, as I say, in verses 20. Uh, 8 to 30, he goes on to call for the, a concrete expression of living as a worthy citizen of heaven is in, the, is in the unity that you enjoy as the people of God. And then in verses 1 to 11 of chapter 2, which is going to be our focus, he calls for the concrete expression of living as a worthy citizen of heaven in our humility towards one another. How we posture ourselves towards one another, how we relate together, how we serve one another. And it's here in these verses that we learn what is going to be the central theme for this morning. That the call to faithfully serve means being served by Jesus so we can serve like Jesus and serve for the glory of Jesus the call to faithful serving is being served by Jesus 
so we can serve like Jesus for the glory of Jesus. And that's going to frame my direction this morning. So the first thing we want to look at is what does it mean to be served by Jesus? Mark 10.45, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What what Jesus is getting at there, I think, or one of the things we can extrapolate out of that is that any talk of serving for us begins not with what we do, not with how we should be a servant, but by what he has done and how he has been a servant and what he has come to do for us. And we see that in our passage in verses 5 to 11. We have this breathtaking sweep of eternity past to eternity future where we see the glory of Jesus and it's full of truth and it tells us so much about him. We have his pre-existence, his incarnation, his death on a cross and then his resurrection and his ascension and his second coming are are assumed as we are led to the eternal exaltation that he's going to enjoy one day as every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess him as Christ. But as Jeff reminded us, verses, the Bible is not for just theological download of data. And certainly verses 5 to 11 is not just for us to, a, a theological dump of data so that we just are informed about Jesus. 5 to 11 here is, it reveals Jesus as the ultimate model, as the ultimate and supreme example of a humble, self-sacrificing, self-denying servant. Verses 5 to 11 are a wonderful and beautiful yet powerful description of how Jesus has served us. Just look with me at verse uh, 6. Paul writes, for, uh, we're confronted with the glorious reality of the eternal pre-existence of Jesus. He was in the form of God. Not that he simply looked like God on the outside, but he wasn't really God. No, when, when Paul uses the word form, it, it's to communicate. In he, he, he existed as God. That was his form. That was the mode of his existence. He was God. In all of the fullness, in, the, in eternity past, Jesus was in full possession of all of the divine, of divine nature. He held all of the characteristics and the qualities of what it means to be God. He was really and truly and fully in his personal, essential nature. He was God. But, Paul goes on to write, he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. Something to be, to use for his own glory. He didn't consider uh, his equality, the fact that he was God, as something to exalt himself with. It conveys this idea that he wasn't out for his own advantage. Jesus refused to use the glory he had from all eternity past for his own gain. But he who was God voluntarily Under no obligation or external compulsion, he chose a path of obedient humiliation. And he emptied himself, verse 7. He made himself nothing. He emptied himself. Now, we just need to be careful here because Paul's words are, are chosen very carefully. And we are called to be faithful, not called to be heretical. So we need to walk just carefully through this. What does it mean that he made himself nothing, that he emptied himself. Well, 
I think what that means, what Paul is getting at, it's metaphorical. I think the four times this kind of word construct is used in the New Testament, and each time they're used metaphorically, not literally. He is, he's not saying that Jesus somehow just divested himself of his divine nature, that he emptied himself of his deity. Because if, if he emptied himself, if he, if he kind of divested himself of his, of his divine nature, then he would no longer be God. If he emptied himself of all the attributes of God, then he would cease to be God. If he emptied himself of his deity, it is difficult to see how, in, how he could be in any meaningful way God. So I don't think Paul is just saying he is, he, you know what, he just left them all on the shelf when he came. But what he's getting at is, without ever abandoning who he was as God... Jesus emptied himself by taking on the form of something else. So he didn't just leave everything behind. No, what Paul is saying is he added something to what he already was, something that he was never before. He was still God, but now he adds him into his divine, when he comes in the flesh, he becomes a man as well. He takes on, as Paul says, the form of, of a servant. Again, not someone who just looks like a servant on the outside, but he adds to his existence as God, now the existence as a servant. And in fact, if you know your Greek, this word is doulos, which actually means slave. He didn't leave anything behind. He just took on another way of existing. He always was God. He remained God, but now he becomes something that he was not before. He was a man. He became a human being and that forever. Jesus, this one who lived in majesty and splendor, this one who enjoyed unhindered fellowship with the Father and the Spirit and enjoyed mutual love from all eternity, this one who received unending praise from a host of heavenly beings, this one who was, as Colossians tells us, was the agent of God's creation and by whom and for whom all things were created, he took on real, true, uh, a real, true existence as a man. He took on flesh. He embraced human existence and opted for a job as a servant. God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us, became a nobody for the sake of others. I was trying to think of an illustration to kind of help this along and it's very difficult. But I think if you want an illustration, you go to John 13, where Jesus washes the feet of his disciples in the upper room as they celebrate Passover together. So let me just put that together with Philippians chapter 2, and I think you'll see what I'm getting at. In John 13, John records this, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments. That's, that's, this is Paul's translation. He who was in the form of God did not count equality with God, something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Then John goes on to say, and taking up a towel, he tied it around his waist. He poured water into a basin to wash the feet of the disciples and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Here's Paul's translation. Taking the form of a servant, he humbled himself. 
This is John continues. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments, he resumed his place, the top of the table. Here's Paul's translation. God has highly exalted him to the highest place, given him the name that is above every name. Don Carson says the eternal son did not think of his status as God as something that gave him the opportunity to get and get and get. Instead, his very status as God meant that he had nothing to prove. He had nothing to achieve. And precisely because he is one with God, he made himself nothing and gave and gave and gave. Love that. But then he goes even further. Verse 8, Paul goes on to tell us that not only did he make himself nothing and take on the form of a servant, but he did something else. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even to death on a cross. He goes further. He he stoops lower, lower than the dirty feet washing of the disciples. Jesus humbled himself as a slave. He sought the good of others at his own expense by becoming obedient to death. And even death on a cross. You know, for us, <clears throat> death is something that we will all face unless the Lord returns. It, it's, it's obligatory. It is necessary and it's unavoidable. But for Jesus, he did it as an act of obedience. He did it as a and a voluntary, deliberate, self-imposed act of obedience. And it's so easy for us to forget that because we, we domesticate the cross because we tattoo it on our arms or we wear it in jewelry. But we, and we miss the shock and awe that Paul is getting at. This son of God was nailed to a cross. Crosses in the Roman times were, were reserved for slaves and rebels and anarchists. It was brutal. It was savage. It was scandalous. It was bloody and it was cruel. So inhumane that they banned it in the end. They couldn't face it anymore. It invoked horror. It was too shameful to mention in polite conversation. For Jews, it was the curse of God. Cursed is he who hangs on a tree. It was the lowest point you could get. It was as bad as it got. And yet Jesus went there. Voluntarily. He emptied himself. He stepped out of the glories of heaven. He embraced human existence. Took a job as a slave. And then died an odious, revolting death on a cross that was reserved for the dregs of the criminal underworld. And he did that for you. And me. He was betrayed, he was arrested, he was beaten, he was mocked, he was nailed, he was hung, he was cursed, he was judged, he was killed for you, for me, because he loved us, because he came not to be served, but to serve. Give his life as a ransom for many to save us, to rescue us, to redeem us from sin and death and hell. And through his 
emptying and humbling servanthood and his death. Men and women who were once alienated from God and cut off from God and hostile to God and condemned by God and dead to God are made alive and are brought near and are forgiven and are redeemed and the hostility has been replaced by harmony and the enmity has been replaced by amity and the punishment has been replaced by peace. And we experience grace and we become citizens of heaven. We've been served by Jesus. This is the great reality of the gospel. This is the good news of the gospel. And it's to undergird all of our lives. It's to undergird everything we do, including our serving. You know, if you are here this morning and you feel burdened because of Serving, you feel weighed down because of serving, you feel resentful because of serving. If you are here and you are leading or playing on Sunday and you just think, oh my goodness, how am I going to get everything together? It's such a pressure because I'm, oh, you know, John was supposed to do it, but John's sick and now I have to do it. And oh, how am I going to get the song list together and who's going to pick up the PA and I'm not going to get back till late on Saturday and I have no time to prepare. If you feel like that right now, get your eyes off yourself. Forget about your serving for a moment. Look to his. He gave his life for you. He gave his life to give you life. So get your eyes off of your serving and look to his. Come to him. He doesn't call us to come and serve him. He comes to us. To serve us. And if you get this, if you get this as the fundamental point of this morning, if if you grasp his love for us and his service of us, we will serve Jesus like we've never served before. And we will serve longer and harder and truer and more sacrificially and more joyfully when we realize that he has He's done the lion's, well, not even the lion's share of the work. He's done all the work in serving us already. You know, for Paul here, Jesus' greatness is not shown in the fact that he can command millions to serve him, although he could. For Paul, Jesus' greatness here is shown in the fact that he came to serve millions by giving his life on the cross. And Paul expects the reality and the truth of Jesus' example and his model here to be a motivation for us to serve one another humbly. For it is only when we have seen that we have been served by Jesus that we can serve like Jesus. That's the second thing. Been served by Jesus so we can serve like Jesus. The call to be faithful means being served by Jesus so we can serve like Jesus for the glory of Jesus. You know, being faithful to serve is is not something we do by our own definition. Being faithful to serve is not something that we can do in... Serving is not something we can do in any which way we choose, any which way we like, in any which way we think it should be done, when we feel like it. No, being faithful to serve is serving in a way that reflects Jesus and serves others like we have been served by him. And our path to humble serving is not found in self-sacrificial death. 
but self-sacrificing humility. Paul makes this point in verse 1 where he says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from God's love, any participation, any fellowship that you enjoy with the Holy Spirit, any uh, experience of his mercy and compassion, if, if you f- have any of that, really it's a little bit misleading because Paul knows that they have. Really should read, if, as is indeed the case, then do this, or since. Since you've had all this, since you have encouragement in Christ, since you have comfort from God's love, since you have fellowship with the Holy Spirit, since you've received his mercy and compassion, now... And he's making a big connection between the blessings and the benefits of the gospel that we have received and how we treat one another. Carson again says, you know, as Christians, we are not just to receive and enjoy the benefits of the gospel, we're to pass them on. And that's what Paul is getting at here. If we were to rephrase it this morning, he'd say, since you've been served by Jesus, serve like Jesus. So how do we serve like Jesus? What does that look like? Well, Paul is going to tell us that if Jesus has served us by emptying himself, then we serve like Jesus by emptying ourselves. Look with me at verse 3. Do nothing. Look at verse 7. Jesus made himself nothing. So do nothing, he made himself nothing. If he made himself nothing, you do nothing. He has served us by making himself nothing. Now, you want to serve like Jesus? Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. What Paul's getting at is a life touched by the grace of God in Jesus Christ should be characterized by a humble disposition to put the cares and the concerns of others before our own. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. He kind of takes on the challenges we all face in our serving, the hindrances we face. He talks about rivalry or selfish ambition, this this, uh, thing that plagues all of us, this self-centered, contentious, competitive greed and lust for our own ways, our own interests, our own comforts, our own happiness. Where we aim to put ourselves out front or on the top, uh, regardless of who we trample on. If you want to know what that looks like in its extreme version, you just have to watch The Apprentice on the TV. You know that? You see that? You see The Apprentice? You know, you watch The Apprentice and they do this challenge. Alan Sugar gives them this challenge. He, He says to them, you know, go off and sell sand to the Arabs. And... They all get down and they say, yeah, what are we going to do? Let's sell sand to the Arabs. And Bob says to Sally, I think we should do it this way. And Sally goes, that's a great idea, Bob. That's fantastic. We should definitely do it that way. And then they fail on the task and they sit in front of Lord Sugar in his office. And Sally says, I always told Bob that that was the stupidest idea in the whole world. And I would have done it differently. And they trample on one another to try and get into Lord Sugar's focus so that he will give them the job. That is selfish ambition in the, in the extreme version. It's horrible. You watch the, the apprentice. It's cringy. They stab one another in the back. That's not how Jesus has served us. That's not how we are to serve. To serve like Jesus means putting the sinful preoccupation with self and our desire to kind of dominate others. It's got to be restrained. It's got to be mortified. 
Because Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. Not for getting, but for giving. Not for dominance, but for obedience. Then he talks about pride. This idea that pride uh, gives us a distorted view of reality. Gives us a distorted view of what we're like. We, th- we, we are people who think too highly of ourselves. We're deceived into thinking we're better than others, that we know more than we really do, that we're more gifted than we are, that we are, uh, it, it makes us blind to our own errors and our own faults. It produces boasting. It produces feelings of superiority that hinder our service. It, it causes us to be defensive and self-righteous and stubborn. It keeps us from listening to wise correction and counsel and rebuke from others. C.S. Lewis used to say pride is like a... I, uh, a cancer of the soul. It just kind of eats up your joy and your contentment and your love and your common sense. But we can look and mock the people on The Apprentice for their pride and selfish ambition and forget that it shows up in our own lives. So I was preparing this message. I'm aware that there are, sat on the front row, people with more degrees than Fahrenheit. You know, they're... They, Their names are on books at the book table. The only place you will find my name on the book table is on the IOU that I wrote for some CDs. We've got PhD people. We've got clever, some of the cleverest people on the planet here. In my opinion, Ike, Jeff, Tim Chester. Sorry, Bob. And Bob says, will you do a message? And I go, I didn't even get fifth level. <laughs> Whatever that is. You, you really want me to preach? And so I sweat over my message all week. I say to my wife, I'm struggling with this. And she comforts me by saying, yeah, it's fine. You're probably just going to crash and burn. <laughs> I didn't need to hear that. No, I did. But it turns up, whether we're playing our guitar, whether we're riding the faders, whether we're leading, singing, or playing, or setting up, it turns up in, turn me up and turn everybody else down. It it shows up in long instrumental sessions, uh, sections of the music where you go, just look at me. It turns up in believing that the worship team exists to express yourself as an artist rather than believing you're there for the good of the church and the worship of God. It expresses itself when Sarah gets asked to sing the solo again, but you don't. It, get, it shows up when Nathan Fellingham gets asked to drum, and Nathan Smith doesn't. That wasn't hard. It shows up in how we respond when we're playing with people who are less gifted, Come on, Sam, can't you play better? You're dragging us all down. You're quenching the spirit, man. If you hit another duff chord, I'm going to hit you. It, it shows up when we're making song choices because they, we want them to best fit our style, our voice, our instrument, or our preferences. It shows up when we feel the pressure to make something happen. It shows up when we want to... Uh, when we feel like we are the ones who lead people into the presence of God. Now, Jesus has done that. 
It shows up when we feel like we've got to be better than the other leader or better than last week. It shows up when we're unwilling to receive criticism or encourage, uh, you know, suggestions from the congregation or the other team members or the pastor. It shows up when we're quick to criticize and point out flaws. I mean, it shows up in musicians going, why can't the sound team turn up earlier? Serve me. It shows up when the sound team say, what is the matter with you? Why can't you just sing down the microphone? I mean, I used to serve on the sound team, and so I used to know what that was like. You know what? It, you might sound great from a distance, but we can't hear you unless you are kissing it. Why can't you do that? It's not that difficult. It, it's, it shows up in a low-grade bitterness towards the congregation. Like, I am, I'm playing here. This is good music. Why can't you raise your hands? Even when the song says, and I lift my hands. What is... <laughs> Are they stapled to your sides? Come on. And we say, worship like you mean it. Because we feel... We want people to think we've done a great job. But Jesus served us by emptying himself. He opted for a job as a slave. He became a nobody for the benefit of, the, of others. And... Selfish ambition and pride have no room. Paul says, when we serve one another, there is no room for selfish ambition and pride. And in the shadow of the cross, there's no room for selfish ambition and pride. But then he points to the right behavior. He says, if Jesus has served us by humbling himself, in verse 8, then we must serve like Jesus by humbling ourselves, by counting others more significant than ourselves, by putting their interests above our own. A call to be faithful in serving is a call to be radically others-centered. Jesus-centered, then others-centered. It's one thing to love serving. It's, a, it's another thing to love those that you are serving. Paul calls us to a humility, a, not a cringy, groveling civility, but an absence of self-exaltation, a putting of others first, a not being preoccupied with ourselves and our own needs, but promoting and the advancement and meeting the needs of others, actively looking for ways to faithfully further the well-being of others, but to love others. Jesus was not some self-centered, egocentric deity. He left the glories of heaven, came to earth, died on a cross for the salvation of sinners. He was radically others-centered. He loved us and gave himself for us. If that's how far Jesus would go, that he would go to washing feet and then obedience to death even on a cross, if he held nothing back to serve us, what does that look like when we serve one another? How far are we prepared to go to sacrifice for others? If he viewed himself as nothing, took on the form of a slave, humbled himself unto death, how how do we view the gifts and the, the, uh, the responsibilities and the roles and the things that we're called to do as we serve? As a platform for our, elf, uh, our own self-aggrandizement or as a platform from which we can pour out ourselves to serve others?
How can you make yourself, how can you adopt the form of a slave as a servant for your church, for your team? Whose feet need washing on your team? Do you need to turn up early or even just on time for setup and rehearsal? Perhaps you need to practice and pray during the week for Sunday morning so that the church will be built up and blessed. Perhaps you need to play in a way or not play so that it serves the singing of the truth, of the lyrics, rather than competing to be heard above the singing. Perhaps it's training yourself to look for ways to encourage your team rather than be the first one to criticize them. You know, worship leaders are your worship people, your team, your band. They're not your minions to run around serving you. If you do, you're a despicable me. You know what? They are not minions. We need to love our team because they are fellow servants. Loving and humbling ourselves like Jesus humbled himself could look like choosing songs that anyone can sing, choosing songs for their Jesus-centeredness and how faithful they put biblical truth in the mouths of the people in your church rather than being cool or popular. It's pursuing excellence and growing in skills so you're not a distraction when you play. It's making much of Jesus and finding ways to point away from yourself to him. It's submitting to your pastor and trusting their intentions are to serve your church even when they want to sing that song from the 70s. It's showing up with a towel on a Sunday morning, metaphorically. To wash feet. It's not showing up with a scorecard to judge the show. And a life touched by the grace of God is characterized by a humble disposition to put the cares and the concerns of others before our own. We've been served by Jesus so we can serve like Jesus for the glory of Jesus. Quickly, verses 9 to 11. Well, actually, if you just look with me, 6 to 8. Is all about what Jesus did, how he served us actively, decisively, deliberately. Verses 3 and 4 are about what we do actively, decisively, deliberately to serve like Jesus. Then verses 9 to 11 is about what God the Father has done because of Jesus. Jesus who emptied himself, who became a slave, who humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. God now lifts him up to He lifts him up from the deepest depths and exalts him to the highest heights, to the greatest possible degree, to a degree that it was never previously reached, to a place of unparalleled honor, of absolute authority, and as the object of universal worship for all eternity. He has highly exalted Jesus, bestowed on him the name that is above every name. When he talks about the highest place, he's not just talking about that Jesus is one step ahead of us. It's an expression of the excessiveness of his exaltation. He's not just one notch higher. It's not like we got the silver medal in, in serving and he got the gold medal. He's in a different category all together in a different class all by himself. 
And God is working all of creation and all of history and all of humanity and all of Jesus' serving and all of the universe towards the goal of the glory of Jesus Christ. And all of our serving should be working towards that goal too. All of our serving should be working towards the goal of Jesus Christ. God is not looking for rock stars. He already has a rock star. Jesus Christ, his son. We all have rock star tendencies. We want to be cool. We want to be impressive. We want to be loved. We want to be in the spotlight. But God says he does not share his glory with another. He won't share it with you, so just get out of the way. Or otherwise he'll get you out of the way. One day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And as musicians and as singers and as sound engineers, we spend a lot of time rehearsing and practicing. Let's make sure in all of our serving like Jesus, this is what we're rehearsing for. That day when we will stand before him, cast our crowns before him, kneel before him and confess with our mouths, you're the Lord. You deserve the glory. Let's seize every opportunity we have today to rehearse for that day. To serve like Jesus for the glory of Jesus. The call to be faithful to serve means being faithfully served by Jesus so we can serve like Jesus for the glory of Jesus. And that's... The, the, the really good news is that faithful serving is not dependent on lights, big sound systems, cool guitar riffs, fat bass. It's not dependent on your skill level, how many CDs you've produced, how many songs you've written, how impressive you are, how hipster-like you might be, how deep your V, is that what they, they talk about when you're a hipster? Faithful serving is dependent upon Jesus. It's because of Jesus. It's for Jesus. It's based on his love, his example, his service of us. And only then are we free and motivated and empowered to serve like him in humility, with love, for the glory of his name. And that's good news because that can happen in small churches, with meager resources, with people of, of ordinary gifting. With all of our weaknesses and faults and sins, we can still be faithful. And when we've been served by Jesus, and we serve like Jesus, and we serve for the glory of Jesus, just as in verses 9 to 11, God gives his yes to Jesus' service, I, I think he will give his yes to us. Not that he will exalt us to a high place, but he'll say to us, well done good and faithful servant. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message by Nathan Smith entitled Faithful to Serve. It was given at the fourth main session of Sovereign Grace Ministries Worship God UK 2014 conference. For other messages and more information on Sovereign Grace Ministries, please visit our website at www.sovgracemin.org. That's www dot s o v g r a c e m i n dot org